listening to the Bible 126 show. Heavenly Father, we come once again with thanksgiving, Father, that you've allowed us this opportunity to gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. And we would ask you, Father, to just minister us to us through your Holy Spirit. Open your word to our hearts that we might indeed behold the one with whom we have to do, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're in the book of Numbers. And we finished last time with the uh, um, intriguing story of Balaam. And uh, we uh, also saw the error and the way of Balaam, and we finished with the doctrine of Balaam, namely where he instructed Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And uh, we also saw the, the zeal of Phineas, the heir to the high priest. You know, one thing that we should recognize is that the priesthood was hereditary, Right? As Doug Wetmore pointed out to me, you couldn't be a high priest in Israel unless you had Levi genes. You see? Yeah, I thought you. Right. I thought I could blame that on him as well as anybody. Yeah. Okay. All right. And I actually got that from Gail Irwin. I had, but I always like to pick on Doug just to. You know. Okay. That Gail Irwin pointed out something else that uh, he was going through some studies and uh, recent just this weekend, and uh, he talked about the uh, challenge to Aaron's priesthood and how Moses gathered up all the staffs in the tabernacle and put them before the Lord. The Lord says, "I have a bud for you." You see? Uh-huh. see? No, okay. That, even that I won't blame on Doug. That was Galen. Anyway, we are at chapter 26. I do believe. Now, the book of Numbers takes its name, at least in our Bibles. It's actually in the Hebrew Bible, it's the wilderness wanderings, but but uh, uh, we follow from the Septuagint in effect, and uh, we call the book by its um, by its English name being the Book of Numbers, taking its name from two censuses. Sensei? Anyway, censuses. Um, that, uh, the first one was when they left Egypt. They was at Sinai, and they, they, they numbered the people, 603,550. You all remember that, yeah. They blow it at Kiddush Barnea, wander in the wilderness for almost 40 years, 38 years, and they now come to the plains of Moab where the second census takes place. And that's, uh, that census is recorded in chapter 26. Chapter 26, verse 1, It came to pass after the plague that the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Eleazar the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, Why the son of Aaron? Because Aaron passed away, didn't he? chapter or so ago, right? Take the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and upward throughout their father's house, all who were able to go to war in Israel. And Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan near Jericho, saying, 
Now notice where they are. They're on the east side of the Jordan, just opposite Jericho. There's a mountain range there, the Abarim, and we'll come to that, which includes several important places. The part that's just opposite Jericho is Pisgah. The highest point in that range of the Abarim Mountain is Nebo. And that's going to be a very important place for Moses before another chapter or so. In any case, they're here at, uh, by the Jordan near Jericho saying, Take you the sum of the people from 20 years old and upward, as the Lord commanded Moses from the children of Israel who went forth out of the land of Egypt. Reuben, the eldest son of Israel, the children of Reuben, Hanak, of whom came the family of Hanakites, the, uh, Palu, the, the family of the Paluets, uh, of the Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, and of Carmi, the family of the Carmites. These are the families of the Reubenites. They who were numbered of them were forty and three thousand and seven hundred and thirty. And the sons of Palu, Eliab. The libraries are full of analyses trying to compare this census with the previous one. Certain tribes or certain families are mentioned, some aren't. Some passed away, obviously. In fact, they all passed away that were in the first census. They all have passed away by the second. But also, even in the naming of the families, there's much that scholars have uh, devoted themselves to. After wandering through all that, I saw no particular insight, so I'm not going to belabor that. We will talk a little bit about the sums before we're through, but we'll just uh, uh, continue through here for now. Uh, verse 9, the sons of Eliab, uh, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abiram. And this is that Abiram, and Dathan, and Abiram, who were chosen from the congregation who strove against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they strove against the Lord. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a sign. <laughs> Notwithstanding the children of Korah, the children of Korah died not. The sons of Simeon after their families, Nemuel, the family of the Nemuelites, and Jamin, the family of the Jaminites, and Jachin, the family of the Jachinites. Of Zerah, the family of the Zerites, of Shaul, the family of the Shaulites. These are the families of the Simeonites, 22,200. Now, you don't have to remember a lot of the numbers to recognize that's a small number. This one of the what we're going to discover when we get through the totals, instead of 603,000, it's actually 1,820 less. So the totals are essentially the same in terms of the total camp. But within the tribes, some tribes uh, grow as much as 64%. Other tribes decline as much as 63%. And all the different tribes are, you know, you can... Most study Bibles have a list of them both, and you can look at that and see there's amazing variations within the tribes themselves. And from this, scholars presume that the tribes that were diminished the greatest had the largest participation in those sins that brought, brought plagues. We've been through several of these things where there have been judgments, 24,000 die here and so many there and so forth. Uh, the inference that we draw, but it's an inference, is that certain tribes were more guilty than others uh, in that trade. Certain tribes didn't look up at the bronze serpent as readily as others did and so forth. But that's all speculation. I think it's futile. It's interesting to see that there's a great variation. It tends to authenticate the record in a sense. 
But the amazing thing for you and I is to discover that in 40 years, no progress was made, not even numerically. Take a tribe of 600,000 able-bodied men, 20 years old, and upward, whatever that implies in totals, 2 or 3 million, pick a number, is that over 40 years, they didn't get any larger. See, in other words, they were treading water. No progress. They were on hold till that first generation died away and was replaced almost to the man. You see, less than three-tenths of a percent. So, And incidentally, the numbers are rounded off anyway. You know, they're, we're, from the record, we know that they're, they're in hundreds, essentially, with a few exceptions. So... Um, anyway, moving on, verse 15, the children of Gad after their families, Zephon, the, the family of the Zephonites, and Haggai, the family of the Haggites, and, the, and Shunai, the family of the Shunites, and of Oznai, the uh, family of the Oznites, and um, Uri, the family of the Erites, of Arad, the family of the Erites, and, and uh, Areli, the family of the Arielites. And these are the families of the children of Gad, according to those who were numbered of them, 40,500. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Judah, after their families were, of Shelah, the family of the Shelanites, of Perez, the family of the Perizzites, and of Zerah, the family of the Zerahites. And the sons of Perez were Hezron, the family of Hezronites, and Hamul, the family of the Hamulites. What causes a lot of scholars' confusion is that those sons are not direct. Sometimes they're, in effect, grandsons, and that causes all kinds of studies of the structure of the family tree. I'm sure there's things in there, but none that I was able to meaningfully ferret out for our study. So that's a, an exercise. If you're drawn to genealogies, you can find ample references that attempt to make something of the subtleties here. We will get into a couple of things a little later that do have some fruit, I believe. <clears throat> But in any case, these are the families of Judah, according to those who were numbered of them, threescore, 16,500. Of the sons of Issachar, after their families, of Tola, the family of the Tolites, the, of Puva, the family of the Punites, the, uh, of uh, Jeshub, the family of the Jeshubites, and of Shimron, the family of the Shimronites. These are the families of Issachar, according to those who were numbered of them, threescore, 4,300. Now of the sons of Zebulun, after their families, of Sarad and the Saradites, and Elon, the family of the Elonites, and uh, Yarlil, the family of the Yalilites. And these are the families of the Zebulonites, according to those who were numbered of them, threescore thousand five hundred. The sons of J Joseph, after their families, were Manasseh and Ephraim. Of the sons of Manasseh, of Makar, the family of the Makarites, and of Makar begot Gilead, and Gilead became become uh, the family of the Gileadites, and of the sons of Gilead, of Aizer, the family of the Aizerites, and of Helek, the family of the Helekites, and of Azariah, the family of the Azraelites, and of Shechem, the family of the Shechemites, of uh, Shemida, the family of the Shemadites, and of Hefer, the family of the Hephraites. Huh. 33, we do have one that we'll talk more about. Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons, but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala and Noah 
and Hagla and Milka and Terza. These five daughters are going to figure quite prominently in the next chapter and in chapter 36 also. And for several reasons that we'll postpone now, we'll get to then, but we will, uh, we'll, uh, I think, get some interesting insights from the first women's lib movement from these five daughters. Uh, because the Eliphad had uh, no sons, and these five gals are going to approach Moses in what is the first recorded instance in the scripture of the women coming before the, the court for legal issues, which is interesting in and of itself. But there's some other things about that that we'll uh, uh, explore a little bit when we get there. Verse 34, the families of Manasseh, those who were numbered of them, 50 and 2,700. These are the sons of Ephraim after their families, and a bunch of other names that I'll probably just really end up mispronouncing, down to verse 37. These are the families of the sons of Ephraim according to the sons, according to those who were numbered of them, 32,500. And these are the sons of Joseph after their families. In other words, the two arms of the tribe of Joseph, two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 38, the sons of Benjamin after their families, of Bela, the family of the Belites, and Ashville, the family of the Ashbelites, and Hiram, the family of the Hiramites, and so on down to verse 41. You can mispronounce them with more skill than I can. So these are the sons of Benjamin after their families, and they who were numbered of them were 40 and 5,600. These are the sons of Dan after their families, of Shuham, the family of the Shumites, these are the families of Dan after their families. All the families of the Shumites, according to those who were numbered of them, were threescore and four thousand and four hundred. Of the children of Asher, after their families, and that continues the names of these, each family named after the son, of course, down through verse 47. These are the families of the sons of Asher, according to those who were numbered of them, who were fifty-three thousand four hundred. And the sons of Naphtali, after their families, and down at verse 50, they, add, they number uh, 45,400. Verse 51, these were, the, these were the numbered of the children of Israel, 600,000 and 1,730. In other words, about 1,820 less than they started with some 40 years earlier. And that's not the total camp, that's the Men of war, that's the army, 20, uh, those that are 20 years old and upward. It excludes the Levites. We'll get to the Levites shortly, too. The purpose of this census is to prepare for the inheritance of the land. The first sentence was the principal thing, was to uh, organize the army, one with the scholars believe. In this case, though, we're going to see that this is in preparation for entering the land of Canaan which, of course, is military, but also overlaid with this is the issue of dividing the, the, uh, the inheritance. Verse 52, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Unto these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. They're going to get the amount of land, the size of the portion, on the basis of the census, so that the smaller tribes won't be crowded out by the bigger tribes. They're all going to get land proportionate to their number, but the location will be determined by lot. And we'll see how that works shortly. 
Verse 54. To many thou shalt give the more inheritance, and to the few thou shalt give the less inheritance. To every one shall his inheritance be given according to those who were numbered of him. Notwithstanding, the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. According to the lot shall the possession thereof be divided between many and the few. That sounds confusing until you think it through. In other words, it's by lot and yet by size. What do you mean by that? Well, the location's by lot, but the amount of each section, so to speak, was determined by their size. Okay, verse 57. And these are they who were numbered of the Levites. Bear in mind, see, the Levites have not been numbered till now. Why? Because they don't inherit the land. They, they, their inheritance is the Lord. These are they who were numbered of the Levites after their families. Of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites. Of Kohath, the family of the Kohathites. Of Merari, the family of the Merarites. These are the families of the Levites. The family of the Libnites, the family of the Hebronites, and the family of the Malites, the family of the Mushites, and the family of the Korahites. And Kohath begot Amram. And the name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, whom her mother bore to Levi in Egypt. And she bore unto Amram Aaron and Moses and Miriam, their sister. And unto Aaron were born uh, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And Nadab and Abihu died when they offered strange fire before the Lord. You recall that. This is all by recollection here. Summary. Those who were numbered of them were 23,000, all males from a month old and upward. See, in this case, they're not numbering from 20 years and old upward because they're not talking military now. Right? There's one month old and upward. And they were not numbered among the children of Israel because there was no inheritance given them among the children of Israel. These are they who were numbered by Moses and Eliezer, the priest, who numbered the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan near Jericho. But among these, there was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priest numbered when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. See, no one in this census, with the exception of two, were in the first census. Who were the two? Joshua and Caleb. Right on. Verse 65. Uh, for the Lord had said of them, They shall surely die in the wilderness. And there was not a left man of them, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay. Now we get to chapter 27, and we come across this interesting uh, episode, the first occasion of women's lib uh, movement in the scripture, where these five daughters petition Moses. And uh, there's some interesting instruction here. Numbers chapter 27, verse 1. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. These are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Hog, Hogla Milka, and Terza. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the princes and all the congregation by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, in other words, this was the official zone. This is where judgment came. All judgment really came from the Lord. The places that this judgment was administered is in effect in the, in the gate of the, of the tabernacle. 
verse 3, our father, this is, this is the petition of these five gals to Moses. Our father died in the wilderness, and he was not in the company of them who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin and had no sons. We know from another passage that he was a leader, and it was the leaders that rebelled with Korah. But he was not guilty of that particular sin. That's the point they're making. He was not one that was part of that rebellion. He died in his sin, as they all did in that, that generation that passed away. But he was not guilty of that particular rebellion. That's a point they're making in his favor as they develop this petition before Moses. They go on. Why should the name of our father be done away from among his family? Because he hath no son. Give unto us, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our father. Okay. Now, the issue here emerges because they're about to go into Canaan. See, again, the preoccupation is already starting. They haven't crossed the, Jericho, uh, the Jordan yet, but um, uh, they're starting to prepare and think about and plan for the inheritance. And they're, neither in Egypt nor in the wander, wilderness wanderings was there any ownership. So this was not an issue. But as they prepare to go into the, the, um, the land, this, this emerges. So... Um, Give unto us, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our father. There's also a concept here, and in Israel, is that um, having a name is an integral part of existence. That which has no name does not exist. That's sort of the rabbinical logic. And that's why God establishes such importance on his name. Okay, And... Uh, so, uh, uh, and the concept of the name is linked to inheritance. And as we call upon the name of Christ, we link ourselves to our inheritance as a joint heir with him. So you can build a whole issue there. But moving on here, uh, verse 5, Moses brought their cause before the Lord. So uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't presume upon himself here as I'm sure occasionally he may have had to, but in this case, he takes this issue before the Lord. This is a legal issue. They're going to set some very important precedents here. Verse 7, the daughters of Zelophehad speak right. Oh, excuse me, verse 6, the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, the daughters of Zelophehad speak right. Thou shalt surely give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren. And thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. It's a very unusual thing in that culture for the title to pass through the gals. But obviously in this exceptional circumstance it applies. Verse 8. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man die and have no son, then he shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. And if he have no daughter, then he shall give his inheritance unto his brethren. If he have no brethren, then he shall give his inheritance unto his father's brethren. And if his father have no brethren, then ye shall give his inheritance unto the, his kinsman who is next to him of his family. And he shall possess it, and it shall be unto the children of Israel a statute of judgment, as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Okay, I'm going to pause here. We might pop over, peek ahead to Numbers 36, the last chapter in the book of Numbers. And the first 11 verses of chapter 36, the last chapter in the book of Numbers, again, gets into this whole issue of the daughters of Zelophehad. And... uh, Uh, I'm not, well, uh, well, let's just go ahead and t- pick it up. Uh, verse 30, chapter 36, verse 1. And the principal fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, and the families of the son of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the princes and the principal fathers of the children of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophad, our brother, unto his daughters. And if they married to any of the sons of other tribes of the children of Israel, then shall their inheritance be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and shall be put to the inheritance of the tribe whereunto they are received. So shall it be taken from the lot of our inheritance. You see the problem that's developing. Okay, verse 4. So in other words, if the gals have the title, but then they marry some guy that's from another tribe, it starts to confuse this whole structure of the land linked to the tribe. So go on verse 4. And when the jubilee of the children of Israel shall be, when then shall their inheritance be put to the inheritance of the tribe thereunto they are received, so shall their inheritance be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Moses commanded the children of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the sons of Joseph have well said. This is the thing which the Lord doth command concerning the daughters of Zehelophad, saying, Let them marry to whom they think best, only to the family of the tribe of their father shall they marry. Now, would you marry anyone you like, as long as it's in your own tribe. So because of this law of inheritance, they are constrained to marry within their own tribe. Okay? So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel move from the tribe to tribe, for every one the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesseth an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife unto one of the family of the tribe of her father, and the children of Israel may, uh, that the children of Israel may enjoy every man the inheritance of his fathers. Neither shall the inheritance be transferred from one tribe to another tribe, but every one of the tribes of the children of Israel shall keep himself to his own inheritance, even as the Lord commanded Moses. So did the daughters of Zehelophat. And as Mala, Terza, Hagla, and Milka, and Noah... The daughters of Zelophehad were married unto their father's brother's sons. And they were married uh, into the families of the sons of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And their inheritance remained in the tribe of the family of his father. And uh, these are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses unto the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan near Jericho. Now it makes us kind of, first of all, you wonder, gee, this is an awful lot of text in God's word, to be devoted to a legal technicality. Uh, especially when you realize they're the tribe of what? Manasseh? And did the tribe of Manasseh settle in the land of Canaan? No. Remember? There's a bunch of them that petitioned Moses, which he denies at first, but then reluctantly agrees. We'll get into that later, later chapters, um, where they settle east of the Jordan. They don't go across the Jordan and, well, correction, they do, Moses 
does concede ultimately and let them keep that land. However, the able-bodied men must stay with the army, cross the Jordan, and when they've conquered the land, they can come back because they liked that. They thought the train looked pretty good. And that's where they settle, and we'll find out the repercussions of all of that when we get to it. But what's interesting is, after all of this, there's a good chance that the daughters of Zelophad didn't inherit in Canaan anyway. So why is this in the Scripture? Well, let me give you a couple of hints. They're the eighth generation since Jacob. You say, gee, Chuck, what do I do with that piece of information? I want to suggest to you, you know, as you go through the book of Numbers, there's a lot of interesting places uh, where there's, there's, it's worthwhile study. Um, and you've been spared some of that since most of my library is still in cartons because it's not unpacked yet. So I haven't had the opportunity to bore you with a lot of technical details. But every once in a while you come across something like Zehelophad and you wonder, why is that really, you know, sometime in the quietude of your study, you may say, Gee, Why? Why is all that in there? And you know one of the principles that I've given you is if you wonder what this is all about, put Jesus right in the middle of it. Now, among scholars, the experts credit C.I. Schofield with the first one that we know of that had this following insight that the messianic claims of Jesus Christ rest on this passage in a very strange way. Because you notice back here in Numbers 27, verse 8. Where the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, and then get down to verse 8, he says, Thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, If a man die and have no son, then ye shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. And I'm going to suggest to you that one such man is a guy by the name of Heli. And what Heli, what you're talking about, Chuck, turn to Luke 3. Keep your place here because we will eventually return to the book of Numbers, but we'll take a little excursion since I think time will permit. And some of you may be very familiar with this material. If not, uh, you're in for some exciting discoveries. The Bible has lots of genealogies in it. Almost all the genealogies support the messianic um, mission. The, the, the uh, commitment God made and his fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. There are three, gener- three genealogies of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The first one is very well known, and that's in the first chapter of the book of Matthew. Every new Bible student who wants to read the New Testament discovers the first 18 verses of the New Testament are tough. They're all these begats. And in Matthew's chapter 1, he has the genealogy of Jesus Christ in its legal form as a Levi would record it, Matthew being a Levi. He had Levi genes, I guess, Doug, right? Yeah, okay. Um, all right. Uh, so Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus Christ from Abraham down through Joseph, the legal line. And uh, as a Jew would, he he Jew reckons his beginning from Abraham onward. And we're all familiar with Matthew's genealogy. Luke's we're about to get into. There is technically a third genealogy of sorts in John, the first three verses, which really deals with Christ's pre-existence before becoming incarnate. But um, in any case, in Luke, um, 
chapter 3, Luke waits till the third chapter to get into the genealogy. And, uh, and he does it rever in reverse order. He doesn't start, he in effect takes the genealogy from Adam to Jesus. But the first verse that you get hit, and he takes it from Jesus working backwards, if you will, all the way back when you get to the uh, uh, end of the chapter, 30, you know, verse 38, chapter 3, uh, he speaks of uh, uh, Adam and describes Adam as the son of God in, in, a, in a very special sense. But now, uh, Luke 23, uh, 23, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, who was the son of Heli. And here is the issue. On the basis of Numbers 27 and Numbers 36, there is a scriptural precedent to ascribe to Joseph the inheritance that was Heli's. And... Uh, now, Heli, then, and then you take Heli. Now, why? Because Heli had no sons. Mary and Joseph obviously got married. What tribe were they both from? The tribe of Judah. They married within the tribe in accordance with the provisions of Numbers 36. You see, when these guys came to Moses, gee, that, that, that principle you laid down for the daughters of Zelophehad is great, except if they cross marrying the tribe, it's going to really mess up the structure that we've set up. So that's when Moses points out, no, no, the daughters can marry whomever they like as long as they're from the same tribe. And that set that principle down, which Mary and Joseph observed. Marrying within the tribe of Judah, they were um, um, fitting that. Now, um, this may be review for some of you, but it's very interesting what most people unless you've gotten into this somehow, are not acquainted with is, hold your place in Luke now, and we're going to turn to Jeremiah 22. And those of you that may will recall this from our Jeremiah study, but we'll, I think it will be fruitful for us to review this, is uh, in, in the days of Jeremiah, there is a really bad dude, a guy uh, by the name of Jeconiah, and he's sometimes called Coniah, as he is here in this passage of Jeremiah 22. And this guy is bad news. Now, the kings have gone from bad to worse, but they don't get any worse, as far in God's eyes, than this guy, Jeconiah. So much so. Now, bear in mind, he is in the royal line. Up to this point, Jeremiah, we're dealing with the kings of Judah from David onward. And we finally get down to Jeconiah. And uh, when we get down here, um, in this passage, well, we pick it up uh, from maybe um, oh, let's just pick it up from verse 24 on. As I live, saith the Lord, through Jeconiah, the son of Jeconiah, the king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee from here. I sure wouldn't want the Lord to speak about me, the way he speaks about Jeconiah. Think, listen to this. And I will give thee unto the hand of those who seek thy life, and into the hand of those whose face thou fearest, even of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Okay, that's not so bad. A lot of, you know, they're, they're, the same thing had Zedekiah and other kings. So, yes, okay, they go to captivity. But it goes on, verse 26. And I will cast thee out, my mother who bore thee, into another country where you were not born, and there ye shall die. 
but to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. See, some will. Jeremiah is full of prophecies that they will return after Babylon captivity, but not some of these dudes, not this guy for sure. Verse 28. Is this man Kaniah, which is a, a variation of Jeconiah, okay, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting by the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. You say, okay, gee, the Lord has bl pronounced a blood curse on Jeconiah. So he deserved it, fine. It's my premise, Chuck Mr.'s personal view, that when that happened, there was a party in the councils of Satan. Because if you remember from Revelation 12, Satan's game from Genesis 3 onward is to break, if he possibly can, the messianic chain. You can actually study the entire Bible cover to cover from the viewpoint of Satan's attempt to break the plan of God. And he started by getting Eve, of course, to sin, which he succeeded at. He also, when the, when, when the deliverer in Genesis 3.15, when God declared war on Satan and, and promised the seed of the woman, Satan presumed that it would be from Eve's issue. So he starts with Cain and Abel and that whole incident. Um, and we go right on through the whole scripture. When you get to Moses and Pharaoh and how, how all the children were killed, but one was miraculously saved. You find that theme repeated again and again throughout the scripture as God reveals in prophecy more crisply the chain by which the Messiah is to be born that allows Satan to focus his attack. When God announces that it's the tribe of Judah from which the Messiah will come, the tribe of Judah is singled out. And so it goes. And that uh, whether it's the babes being slaughtered by Pharaoh in the days of Moses, or whether it's the babes being slaughtered in Bethlehem by Herod, the motivation is the same. It's a satanic plot to break the messianic strain. Here, in the corruption of Kaniah, God finally has it with him, pronounces a blood curse on the royal line. Satan, from his point of view, must have rejoiced, because now God is over a barrel. And the Messiah is to be of the lineage of David. And yet, in the royal line, there's a blood curse on the successors. God is over a barrel. Well, <laughs> not really. But it's, it's that surprise that brings about the necessity for the virgin birth. Not as a surprise. God knew that up in Genesis 3.15, way back there. Because he said, from the seed of the woman, which is biologically a contradiction, the seeds of the man. But that idiom, that title of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, endures. The virgin birth hinted there becomes the mechanism by which God end runs his own blood curse. When we study the genealogies of Matthew carefully, Matthew, being legalistic, takes it from Abraham down through David, Solomon, and the royal line, the kings, all the way down to Joseph. But 
was Joseph in the bloodline of Jesus Christ? No, but he carried the legal title. When Luke does his genealogy, he starts, in effect, I'm going to invert it so it's going in the same direction, he starts with Adam. Takes Adam right on through, all the way through, until he gets to David. But at David, he takes a detour. He doesn't go from David to Solomon. He goes from David to Nathan, another of his sons, and carries down a whole different family tree, which ends up at Mary. Now, when you go back and you discover that David's dream was to build the house of God. That's what he wanted to do very badly. And God says, no, you can't. David, you're a man of war. It's your son that's going to build my house. And so David, incidentally, he can't build the house. God says, no, but what he did do is pay all the bills in advance. David spent the rest of his life gathering wealth so that when Solomon, on top of his wealth, he'd be able to do it right. But God says, David, I won't let you build me a house. But I'll tell you what I will going to do. I'm going to build you a house because the Messiah will be of the house and the lineage of David. And when you and I read that promise in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, we assume that's a tautology or a pun, the house and lineage of David. We don't realize those are separate. It's a house and lineage, both. One through Joseph, one through Mary. Both of the tribe of Judah. Thus, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, by the subtleties of the genealogy, fit all the requirements. So Satan may have felt that God blew it when he put a blood curse in the line of Jeconiah, which, which ultimately would lead to Joseph. He had no problem because the Messiah was not to be born of Joseph, to be his legal father. But it was the virgin birth was in God. And it wasn't a response action. God knew that from the beginning. That was the deal Christ, the Father and the Son, made back before the world was created. The everlasting covenant between the Father and the Son. He foresaw your, your need and mine for redemption, our need for redemption, before Adam was created. It was all in his mind from day one. So, so this all hangs, interestingly enough, from a legalistic point of view, on the daughters of Zelophehad. Because this principle, that which the Scripture has a surprising amount of space allocated to, is the principle by which, when a father has no son, the women have the name, the title, as long as they marry within the tribe. And I'm going to submit to you that Heli had no sons. He had a daughter by the name of Mary, who married Joseph in the tribe of Judah. And so that looks ahead a bit. I think I, now, some of you may say, gee, that's kind of, I personally think that's um, one of the things that's exciting because here we have 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years. Book of Numbers is one of the five most venerated parts of the Bible, namely the Torah or the Pentateuch, if you will, the five books of Moses. And woven in their fabric, in the subtlety of these legal technicalities and the genealogies, is all part of God's master plan that he laid down so that you and I might have eternal life. Your opportunity to be a co-heir with Jesus Christ, all that the Father has for him. Your opportunity hangs on the Lord establishing this principle in Numbers 27 and 36. Interesting. God has gone through an amazing amount of trouble to position everything so that you and I might benefit, that you and I might 
have ascribed to us the righteousness of his own son. And he might indeed remember your sin and my sin no more. Okay, uh, that brought us, all that brought us down to Numbers 27, verse 11, right? See, we did get back to the book of Numbers. Surprise. The next three verses are interesting. The Lord said unto Moses, Get thee up into this Mount Abarim, and see the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. And when thou hast seen it, thou shalt be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother was gathered. For ye rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin, in the strife of the congregation, to sanctify me at the water before their eyes, that is the water of Meribah in Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. You recall how Moses blew it. And uh, because of that, uh, he was not to enter into the promised land. God, as a concession, and we gather from a couple of uh, verses, I think Deuteronomy 3 gives us a hint that the accommodation to see the land was in response to Moses' prayer. Moses didn't challenge God's decision that he would not enter the land. But he apparently, with just him, he apparently petitioned the Lord to at least see it. In the in the the range, the mountain range called Abarim, there's a couple of key peaks. The highest peak in that range is Mount Nebo, named after a nearby city. And uh, it's at that peak that you can look and see the land from Hebron all the way to the Galilee. And it was on that peak that uh, Moses was afforded a glimpse of the land. Uh, before he was to be gathered to unto his people. Verse 15. And Moses spoke unto the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them, and who may go in before them, and who may lead them out, and who bring them in that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep that have no shepherd. Interesting reaction of Moses. Do you realize the total absence of self? No, um, no uh, issue there other than, gee, Lord, let's not leave them without a leader. Let's put someone really in charge. A man over the congregation who may go out before them and who may go in before them. And incidentally, in the linguistic uh, of that passage, some of those terms suggest a military going out and coming in, a, a, a military leader who may lead them out and who may bring them in. Congregation, let the congregation of the Lord be not as a sheep that have no shepherd. Verse 18. The Lord said unto Moses, Take thee Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thine hand upon him, and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and give him a charge in their sight. Interesting how the Lord picks, picks him by his spiritual position. In, in whom is the Spirit? What Spirit? The Holy Spirit. And lay thine hand upon him. And set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, give him a charge in their sight. And thou shalt put some of thine honor upon him, 
that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. And he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. And his word shall they go, uh, at his word shall they go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, even all the congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation, and laid his hands upon him and gave him a charge, as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So he, uh, Joshua was formally invested in the role. Um, he is the successor to Moses, but not his equal. Moses spoke directly to the Lord and was a direct communication. Uh, Joshua is going to be um, uh, enabled through uh, Eliezer the priest. The Urim here refers to the Urim and, the Urim and Thummim, and scholars have spent centuries trying to second-guess what these things were. And there's all kinds of theories. None of them are that well supported. There was some installed procedure that the high priest could use, which is equivalent. You, you and I would consider it like casting lots. And some people believe it was a certain uh, stone that would catch a certain gleam. And there, there, there are all these theories, black stone and the white stone. The Revelation makes a hint to that. But but what, what the Urim and Thummim really were, we don't know. A lot of detailed scholarship is going to try to ascertain what mechanical form was used. It apparently was something that could be held uh, in the person of the high priest, and it was a means by which he could determine God's will. In a sense, it's somewhat in the spirit of casting a lot. But exactly the mechanics of it are speculation, much as I'd like to to share with you some new insight. Uh, most of the things that I have uh, come across uh, um, uh, are still subject to a lot of scholastic debate. But the point is that Joshua got his insights from the high priest. This is where the channel of communication shifts from God through Moses to the people. Joshua is the leader of the people, but he gets his communication through the priesthood. And uh, so, uh, so he's uh, in charge. Now, uh, Mount Pisgah is uh, directly across from Jericho. And I think we've talked about in the past that it's right in that region uh, uh, that we have several events have occurred. It's in that region that Elijah was caught up. We've studied that, I believe, earlier. It's also in that region that um, Moses, of course, is buried in Mount Nebo. We're going to come to that later. Um, it is also in that region that the Lord Jesus Christ took Peter, James, and John up a mountain and had the experience that's recorded in Matthew 17 as a transfiguration, in which, among other things, uh, both Moses and Elijah appears with the Lord. It's interesting that all those things, the termination of Elijah's ministry, the termination of Moses' ministry, and the transfiguration all occur in the same piece of geography. And uh, that's why uh, there may be a whole other insight into what Jesus said when you say, say to this mountain, move yonder, uh, yonder place, and it shall remove. A figure of speech, perhaps, and yet uh, maybe there's far more to it than that. Okay, we're in chapter 28, verse 1. Now, we're, uh, chapter 28 and chapter 29 are laws. And uh, 
Uh, one of the decisions I've made is not to get excessively into detail. We'll skim through this lightly, not try to make it a lesson in Levitical uh, procedures. Uh, Numbers 28 and 29, in a sense, presuppose Leviticus 23, which also deals with the same material to some extent. But Leviticus 23 seems to presuppose Numbers 28 and 29. So it's an interwoven situation. Numbers 28 and 29 also presupposes the first seven chapters of Leviticus and also Leviticus chapter 20, uh, 16 as well as 23. Uh, and Numbers 15, we had some of this. Now, uh, to do a systematic study of this would be very tedious and extensive, and I, I won't uh, uh, impose that upon you. For those of you that are interested, uh, uh, that should give you enough of a total to dig into it, uh, Leviticus uh, 23, 16, 23, and 28 and 29. But we'll just go in and get the high, highlights as we go here. Leviticus, uh, I mean, the Numbers 28, verse 1, The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say unto them, My offering and my bread for my sacrifices made by fire, for a sweet savor to me shall ye observe to offer unto me in their due season. And thou shalt say unto them, This is the offering made by fire, which ye shall offer unto the Lord, two lambs of the first year without spot, day by day, for a continual burnt offering. And one lamb shalt thou offer in the morning, and the other lamb shalt thou offer in the evening. Or actually between the evenings, the way it really uh, does read. Okay. And uh, uh, it's interesting that uh, according to Josephus, the, and that was at, in the time of Christ, the Passover lamb was slain between the ninth and the eleventh hours. That is between 3 and 5 p.m. And, uh, in, and uh, that's what they really mean by between the evenings. Thus the death of our Lord in the ninth hour, in Matthew 27, verse 45, uh, agrees with the Passover lamb offering as described by Josephus, interestingly enough. But we'll keep moving here. Um, verse 5, and tenth part of the ephah of a flower for a meal offering mixed with a fourth part of the hen of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering which is ordained at Mount Sinai for a sweet savor, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord. And the drink offering thereof shall be a fourth part of a hen of one lamb, and and in the holy place shalt thou cause the strong wine to be poured unto the Lord for a drink offering. And the other lamb shalt thou offer at evening like a meal offering of the morning, and like the drink offering thereof shalt thou offer it, um, a sacrifice made by fire of sweet savor unto the Lord. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs of the first year without spot, and two tenths parts of a flower for a meal offering and mixed with oil, and the, uh, the drink offering thereof. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath, because the continual burnt offering and its drink offering. So initially, there's a, there's a daily offering that's always done. Then on Sabbath day, there's additional things. And then for each feast, you'll see these all, all these things are additive, not uh, substitutionary. Verse 11, And on the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord, two young bullocks and one ram, and seven lambs of the first year without spot, tenth parts of flour, the meal offering mixed with oil, one bullock, two-tenth parts of flour for a meal offering uh, mixed with oil and uh, for one ram, and a tenth part of flour mixed with, a, with oil for a meal offering unto one lamb for a burnt offering with sweet savor, sacrifice made unto fire unto the Lord. And the drink offering shall be a, a half a hymn of wine unto a bullock, and a third part of a hymn unto a ram, and a fourth part of a hymn unto a lamb. And this is the burnt offering of every month throughout the months of the year. And one kid for the... Uh, Goats for a sin offering unto the Lord shall be offered besides the continual burnt offering and a drink offering. 
And in the fourteenth day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. Now one thing to be aware of is there are two simultaneously feasts. There is the Passover feast, but simultaneous with it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which runs seven days. That's also mentioned here. Verse 17, In the fifteenth day of this month is the feast seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. In the first day shall be the holy convocation. Ye shall do no manner of servile work therein. But ye shall offer a sacrifice made by fire for a burnt offering unto the Lord, two young bullocks and one ram and seven lambs of the first year. Uh, they shall be unto you without blemish. And the meal offering shall be of flour mixed with oil. Three-tenth parts shall ye offer for a bullock, two-tenth parts for a ram. Tenth part shall thou offer for every lamb throughout the seven lambs, and one goat for a sin offering to make an atonement for you. You shall offer these beside the burnt offering in the morning, which is for a continual burnt offering. In this manner shall you offer daily throughout the seven days the food of the sacrifice made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. It shall be offered beside the continual burnt offering and its drink offering. And on the seventh day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work. And in the day of the first fruits, now change subjects here. Also, in the day of the first fruits, you shall be, you shall bring in a new meal offering unto the Lord. After your weeks be out, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work, but you shall offer the burnt offering for a sweet savor unto the Lord. Two young bullocks, one ram, seven lambs of the first year, and their meal offering of the flour mixed with oil, three-tenth parts unto one bullock, two-tenth parts unto one ram. A tenth part unto one lamb throughout the seven lambs, and one kid of the goats to make an atonement for you. You shall offer them beside the continual burnt offering and its meal offering. Uh, they shall be unto you without blemish and their drink offerings. Um, just a couple of quick comments. There is the Passover, of course, on the 14th of Nizon. There is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which runs seven days from the 15th on, after Passover on. Not dealt with yet here is the, the uh, Feast of Pente- uh, Pentecost, which is the 50 days after the Passover. There is, in the first month of their year, month of Nizon, three observances. Passover, which we're, we well discussed. The Feast of Unleavened Bread here described those seven days. There's also the Feast of First Fruits, And if you study both Leviticus and this, it's, a tough to figure, it's tough to figure out exactly when the Feast of First Fruits is supposed to be offered. It turns out that by tying together passages after they enter Canaan, where they really started doing this, because they didn't do that, apparently didn't do that in the wilderness wanderings. They observed the Feast of first fruits when they actually were in the land and were harvesting. And the way that was defined is, it's the morning, it's observed the morning after the Sabbath, after Passover. And that would vary a lot because Passover was a lunar month issue. So as a, as a day of the week thing, it would shift all around. But whenever Passover was... After Passover, there was a Shabbat, Sabbath, and after that, the day after was the Feast of Firstfruits. Now, on one particular year, Passover occurred, and three three days and three nights after Passover was Sunday morning. And while the Feast of Firstfruits, that is the morning after Shabbat, after Passover, while the Feast of Firstfruits were rising from the temple, a couple of gals were inspecting an empty tomb. At Golgotha, or near Golgotha. So the, the Passover was, the, our Passover lamb was offered when Passover was celebrated, prophetically. 
The Feast of Unleavened Bread is generally regarded as referring to his suffering and so forth in a collective sense. The Feast of First Fruits, which points to his being our first fruits, the firstborn of the dead, was fulfilled the morning that we celebrate as Easter morning. So those three feasts are in the first month of their ecclesiastical year. There are three feasts at the end of the seven, seven feasts of Moses, three in the first month, the last three in the seventh month. We'll get to that a little bit here. The uh, In-between, 50 days after Passover, is the Feast of Pentecost. In all the feasts, unleavened bread is emphasized, leaven being a type of sin, which corrupts by puffing up. And it's used in the Old and New Testament as a symbol of corruption. And uh, a little lump, a little leaven, leaven of the whole lump is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Jesus uses the expression twice, and Paul uses the expression twice. In, both, in all four cases, it's uh, the same type of, of uh, ascription. There's one feast in which the feast itself is to be celebrated with leavened bread, namely the Feast of Pentecost. So to the extent that the Feast of Pentecost refers to what? The church, indeed. As, as indeed was uh, exemplified in Acts chapter 2, when, at, when celebrating the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was in fact given in a very special way. Um, it's interesting that that feast which points prophetically to the church <laughs> is leavened bread. So before we get too smug, we should understand the Feast of Moses. It's interesting how all seven feasts have both a memorial role, commemorative role for history, and that's the one that Jewish Judaism emphasizes. It also has, perhaps more hidden, a prophetic role of Jesus Christ. The first three feasts of his first coming and the last three of his second coming. Okay, moving on to chapter 29, verse 1. We can get through this chapter so we don't have it hang over next week when we can get into... Well, let's see. We'll just go as we get. Yeah, we'll we'll just we'll, we'll we'll keep. I don't know how else to deal with this because I don't want to skip it. That's not right either. And yet, I think it, it's easy to get bogged down if we spend too much time on it. So we'll just try to go through it lightly and hit a few things. Chapter twenty-nine, verse one. And in the seventh month and on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no, no servile work. It is a day of blowing trumpets unto you. Blowing trumpets unto you. The Feast of Trumpets. Incidentally, this gets very confused because it's the it occurs on the first day of the seventh month of their ecclesiastical year. It also turns out their civil year, the first month of their civil year is the seventh month of their ecclesiastical year. They're not coterminous. The first day, in fact, the first two days of the first month of the new year is Rosh Hashanah. And because the civil celebration co-occurs with the ecclesiastical celebration of the Feast of Trumpets, they're easily confused because they occur at the same time. But Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, occurs in what they call the first month of the civil year. And the, the Feast of Trumpets, which occurs on the first days of the seventh month of the ecclesiastical year, coincide. And if that doesn't confuse you enough, you should also know that the ecclesiastical and civil labels are reversed in some scholarships. That is, they, they will refer to the, what we would consider the civil year. They call that the ecclesiastical year and vice versa. Their names are, 
that'll help get you even further confused. But so you and I don't get confused. We think of the religious ceremonial year as the ecclesiastical year, and its seventh month is the month in which three things occur. The Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? Speaking in a civil or secular sense, that seventh month is the first month of their administrative or, or, or secular year. Okay? And that new year is called Rosh Hashanah. Most people will consider Rosh Hashanah and the Feast of Trumpets the same. They do co-occur, but they're of different origin. But in any case, we have a, a, a day of blowing trumpets. And, uh, and there are, libraries are full of people writing pamphlets, trying to tie the Feast of Trumpets to the last trump, to the seven trumpets, and all of that. And, and uh, uh, that gets into a whole other can of peas. Um, what confuses many people about the last, the three feasts of the month of Tishri, the seventh month, is that the whether whether the feast of trumpet whether what exactly prophetically the feast of trumpets referred to and the feast of tabernacles referred to is argumentative. I tend to lean, but not conclusively, that the feast of trumpets is tied to the rapture. The feast of tabernacles is tied to the millennium. Not 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 the you know fifteen days later. I don't mean that. What confuses most people is Yom Kippur on the 10th day of the month, lies between. And uh, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And the, day, the atonement was made at Calvary's cross. And that's certainly true. But there is a sense in which the Day of Atonement will be recognized by Israel at the end time. And it's in that sense, to the extent that's valid, that's an if, to the extent that's valid, then those three feasts that occur in Tishri refer, have a special fulfillment in the second coming. But don't misunderstand me. Yom Kippur clearly was fulfilled at Calvary's cross, but there's a sense in which prophetically it'll be identified in, in, in terms of Israel in the, uh, in the uh, end time. But that's what makes that, an, that analysis um, complex and uh, requires a lot of study before you too glibly embrace any one of the theories that tabernacles is this and trumpets is that. Be very careful. I encourage you to study it because if nothing else, you'll get a real feeling for uh, God's Word because it spends a lot of time on those feasts. Uh, feast of Tabernacles is a compulsory feast, incidentally. Had to be there in Israel at times. So we'll go on. Verse 2, and you shall offer a burnt offering of a sweet savor in the Lord, one young bullock, one ram, seven lambs of the first year without blemish, and their meal offering shall be in flour mixed with oil, three-tenths parts of bullock, two-tenths parts of a ram. We're not interested particularly in the civil detail, I mean the, the ecclesiastical details of, how, of the Levitical ceremonies. That's not our issue here. But it is interesting to note a few things, because one of the burdens you and I have is to know God. And God does not change. So we can learn about God in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's true today. Now that doesn't mean he holds us to have these offerings. That's not the point. But we can learn a few things about God. Let's say he's very specific. 
He cares about how we go about in our worship. That doesn't mean we're worship like this, but it means he's not casual about it. He would have us know him. He would have us learn how he is, in fact, to be worshipped. Um, but moving on. Verse 5, one kid for the goats for a sin offering to make atonement for you. Uh, 29.6, uh, besides the burnt offering of the month and its meal offering, and the daily burnt offering, and in the meal offering, the drink offerings according to their ordinances for a sweet savor, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord. And you shall have on the tenth day of this month, of the seventh month, and holy convocation, and ye shall afflict your souls, and ye shall not do any work therein. But ye shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord for a sweet savor, one bullock, one ram, and seven lambs of the first year, and they shall be unto you without blemish, and their meal offering shall be flour mixed with oil, three-tenth parts of a bullock to two-tenth parts of one ram, a tenth part of one ram throughout the seven lambs, one kid of the goats for a sin offering beside the sin offering of the atonement, and a continual burnt offering and a meal offering of it and the drink offerings. Now that, from 7 through 12, you can't tell, unless you've done some other homework with Leviticus 23 and elsewhere, what you see there is some instruction that applies to a day about which there's a lot more said in the Torah, in Leviticus 23 and elsewhere. It's a day called Yom Kippur. It says, you shall afflict your souls. It's Yom Kippur, that in a spiritual renewal sense is the high day. It's the day that Israel, deeply, thoroughly, more than any other day, is conscious of their sin. It's a day in which the high priest, it's the one day of the year that one man, the high priest himself, is allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. If he enters that Holy of Holies with any sin, he dies. And to be safe, what they used to do is tie bells to the bottom of his robe. So as long as they, the, the other priests, they wouldn't dare go in, but they could hear. As long as it was tinkling, they knew he was all right. In case he wasn't and he was struck dead, what do they do? You go in and get him. No, 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 no. You go get him. They had, he was the anchor man. They tied a rope around his ankle, and they would let it in. And if the tinkling stopped, <laughs> drag on. That, you know, you and I may, it sounds strange to us, but recognize the practical problem. In the Holy of Holies, he was in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord could not look upon any sin. So was he sinless? Well, not exactly. Not really. You know, he, he was ceremonially sinless, uh, ceremonially sinless, because there was prescribed a very elaborate ritual through washings and cleansings and prep before he could enter in on that particular day. There was a whole very laborious procedure by which the high priest was sanctified, cleansed from his sin by special offerings and special washings and so on. That's all described in the I think in Leviticus and elsewhere. Deuteronomy also. So that's Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. A very, very heavy day in Israel. Then, of course, even today, with all the modernism and reform, all this um, uh, standing back, if you will, from, from, from uh, the deep traditions, uh, there, it's, uh, it's even among the more casual observers of Judaism. 
Yom Kippur is a day with no, no equal. In fact, one of the theological problems you have in Judaism, because there is such emphasis throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Torah, on offerings for sin. One of the problems, they have a tough time developing elaborate rationales for, is what do they do about sin today? There are no offerings. There is no temple. There is no brazen altar. These issues are not observed. So one could say, in a ceremonial sense at least, they are without a, a recompense for sin. Now that's not true, because the recompense was made once and for all on the cross at Calvary. And that's what we have to do. Okay, we got through Yom Kippur, which occurs on the 10th day of the 7th month. That brought us down to verse 12, which deals with the 15th day. Bear in mind, there's three key feasts, Mosaic feasts, in the 7th month. First one is Feast of Trumpets on the 1st of the month. Yom Kippur on the 10th of that month. And on the 15th day of the 7th month, you shall have a, a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work. You shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. So this, fifth, starting on the 15th through the 22nd, is the period which they're going to call the Feast of Booths. Or you and I would more commonly hear it as called the Feast of Tabernacles. Very interesting feast. Um, you shall uh, offer a burnt offering, a sacrifice made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord, 13 young bullocks, 2 rams, 14 lambs of the first year, and they shall be without blood. You know, that's a lot. You know, you, start, you, know, you and I glibly read these things. Um, I've often been tempted to bring into the Bible study, you know, some small animal. And, you know, especially for the hour or two, uh, pet it and pass it around. And so at the end, you know, we break its neck and offer it, you know. And, and you'd be shocked. In fact, even my discussing this causes uproars, you know, from, from the animal rights types, you know. Um, but it's interesting that the Lord did the, didn't do this accidentally. This wasn't some kind of barbaric practice that he condoned thousands of years ago. It's a practice he instituted. Why? If, among many reasons, to, to demonstrate he was serious about sin. Not that the lamb or the whatever would take away sin directly. It was prophetic. It pointed to Jesus Christ, but it was an object lesson. It caused people, when they saw the blood shed, they would wince. I mean, they weren't calloused. But they understood that God was serious about sin. And I submit to you, while he does not look to us to offer those offerings in our situation today, that does not mean he's any less serious about sin today. Israel had the benefit of this daily, weekly, monthly, annual series of, of exercises to get across that A, he was serious about sin, B, just as he taught Adam and Eve that without the shedding of blood they would not be covered when he made them coats of skins of animals. The Levitical idea was planted not in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, back in Genesis chapter 3. At the end of that chapter, he teaches them. I think Cain and Abel were supposed to offer offerings like these. That's why Abel's was accepted, because it was a lamb. Not that he was a shepherd. 
because lamb was ordained prophetically to speak of Jesus Christ. When Cain, yes, he was a farmer, but when he offered the works of his hands, he was, it was faith over works. That was the issue at the time. Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was not. Caused his, caused uh, um, his brother to kill him. They took it seriously. But the point is, this idea that by the shedding of blood, you and I would be covered by a goat, a bullock, or whatever. No, by none other than Jesus Christ. But those ideas were planted deeply in the in the consciousness of Israel well in advance of, of, of the event. Okay, we have, uh, particularly now on, on the tabernacles, we have a, 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 a larger number of these things on verse 13 and 14. Verse 15, Teth part to each lamb of the 14 lambs. One kid of, uh, of the goats for a sin offering beside the continual burnt offering, a meal offering, and a drink offering. Verse 17, on the second day, ye shall offer 12 young bullocks, two rams, 14 lambs of the first year without spot, and the meal offering and uh, drink offerings for the bullocks and the rams and for the lambs, and shall be according to the number after the ordinance. One kid for the goats for a, uh, for a sin offering, beside the continual burnt offering and the meal offering thereof and the drink offerings. And on the third day, 11 bullocks, two rams, 14 lambs of the first year, and so on. Meal offering, drink offerings, lambs be according to the number after an ordinance and one goat for a sin offering beside the continual burnt offering and its meal offering and its drink offerings. And on the fourth day, ten bullocks, two rams, fourteen lambs of the first year without blemish, and the meal offering, and so on. And verse 26, and on the fifth day, nine bullocks. See, just count down. See? Two rams, fourteen lambs of the first year without spot, and the meal offering and the drink offerings for the bullocks and for the rams and the lambs. Number one, one uh, goat for a sin offering beside the continual burnt offering, its meal offering, its drink offering, down to verse 29. And on the sixth day, eight bullocks, two rams, 14 lambs of the first year, and so on. And get down to verse 32. And on the seventh day, seven bullocks, two rams, and uh, 14 uh, lambs of the first year. The bullocks count down each day, but then the others stay the same. And a meal offering and a drink offerings for the bullocks and the rams and the lambs shall be according to the number after the ordinance. Verse 34, and one goat for a sin offering besides the communal bird offering and the meal offering and a drink offering. And on the day, eighth day, you shall have a solemn assembly. You shall do no servile work therein. But you shall offer a burnt offering, a sacrifice made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord, one bullock, one ram, seven lambs of the first year without blemish, their meal offering and the drink offerings, the bullock. For the ram and the lamb shall be according to the number after the ordinance, and one goat for a sin offering beside the continual burnt offering, and its meal offering, and its drink offering. And these things shall ye do unto the Lord in your set feasts, beside your vows and your free will offerings. See, these doesn't count free will. These are the ones that are ordained. On top of this, if you were of a mind, a heart to do that, you added your own free will offering. For your burnt offerings, and for your meal offerings, and for your drink offerings, for your peace offerings, and Moses told that children of Israel according to all the Lord commanded Moses. Now this last feast uh, is called the Feast of Tabernacles for reasons that are not evident in this passage. What they also did during this period was they built themselves in their backyard a uh, what I would consider from what I gather somewhat of a crude shelter. They would take staves and poles and they would build a shelter but it specifically was not to be watertight or light-tight or airtight. And they were to dwell in this booth or, or, or uh, 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 lean-to or whatever um, for, the, 
for the celebration. And it was intended to remind them of the wilderness when they had wind go. That's why it specifically provides for the wind to blow through the, be able to blow through the cracks in the structure they made. So they were very improvised, temporary kind of, of structures within which they camped during this uh, celebration. And that's why it's called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles are frail. Um, and that's the commemorative role of this feast. There are scholars that believe it also is a prophetic role, and if so, it's, it smacks very substantially of the, of the, uh, of the uh, ushering in of the millennium, the second coming of Jesus Christ in power. Not the, not the, not the rapture. Some, some tied to the rapture, I don't think so. I think if, if it is prophetic in that sense, it refers to um, the, uh, the dwelling, the Lord dwelling with us. But, uh, okay. Uh, I think we can get through the law of vows here pretty quickly. Um, the law of chapter 30 says don't make them, but if you do, make sure you keep them. And girls, don't do it without the permission of your husband. That's chapter 30. Any questions? No. Okay, we'll go. Okay. Okay. Chapter 30, verse 1, And Moses spoke unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. If a man... Now, notice this. It does not suggest you make vows. It's a concession if you insist upon making vows and better keep them. And more that you read the Bible, the more you'll be convinced you don't make vows. You give Satan opportunity. Because you're going to blow it. And when you blow a vow, that's heavy. The Lord takes them seriously. Well, if the Lord takes them seriously and you blow it, that gives Satan a chance to put you on a real guilt trip. And I guess my only rebuttal is, you know, God gave Jesus Christ, who died for our vows as well as our sins. So I'm not saying you should be cavalier about either. But but give vows. Don't, don't make vows. But anyway, moving on. Uh, if a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond. <laughs> Would you think of doing that? Bind his soul with a bond. He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. And by the way, the scripture is full of examples where someone blurts out a rash vow and then lives to regret it. The examples of the vows in the scripture are all negative, with the only uh, few exceptions. And those are exceptions where God makes a vow. God keeps his vows. Don't play God. Don't make vows, because you won't be able to keep them, and you'll be in trouble. Girls, verse 3, If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord, and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, and her father hear her vow and her bond wherewith she hath bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace with her, then all her vows shall stand. And every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. But if her father disallow her in the day that he heareth, not any of her vows or any of her bonds wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand, and the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed her on that day. You're not next year. Okay. And if she had at all an husband when she vowed or uttered anything out of her lips wherewith she bound her soul, and her husband heard it and held his peace, with her in the day that he heard it, then her vow shall stand, and her bonds wherewith her uh, she bound her soul shall stand. But if her husband 
disallowed her on the day that he heard it. Then he shall make a vow. He shall make her vow. Excuse me. Then he shall make her vow, which she vowed, and that which she uttered with her lips, wherewith she bound her soul of no effect, and the Lord shall forgive her. But every vow of a widow and of her that is divorced, wherewith they have bound their soul, shall stand against her. So widows and divorcees don't vow. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound her soul by a bond with an oath, and her husband heard it and held his peace with her and disallowed her not, then all her vows shall stand and every bond wherewith uh, she bound her soul shall stand. But if her husband hath utterly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatsoever proceedeth out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the bond of her soul shall not stand. Her husband shall hath made them void, and the Lord shall forgive her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul, her husband may establish it, or her husband may make it void. But if her husband altogether hold his peace with her from day to day, then he established all her vows and all her bonds which are upon her. He confirmeth them, because he held his peace with her in the day that he heard them. But if he shall in any way make them void after he hath heard them, then he shall then he shall bear her iniquity. Oh. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife, between a father and his daughter, yet being in her youth in her father's house. And we won't jump into 31 because that, uh, we'll, that we can't do that. Uh, we'll take, uh, we probably can uh, finish, I think, uh, the book of Numbers uh, next week. While I remind, should tell you on the 24th of April, I will not be here. And, I, I'm, and I'm still praying about what to do in terms of a follow-on book. We could go right on to Deuteronomy, but that might be heavy. It might be more refreshing to take a New Testament and then bounce back or whatever. It is my goal to try, try to do the Torah. We've done Genesis, Exodus, uh, Numbers. We did sort of Leviticus with Hebrews. So I've got Deuteronomy left before the rapture. So to the extent the Lord allows me to do the Torah, we'll have uh, somewhere we get. But I think what we, uh, we will, we'll, Lord's still leading me as to what we'll do specifically after Numbers, but we have at least one more meeting in, in Numbers, and then we'll have a singular instance, and then I'm absent, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Huh? And let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Some of these lessons are very full of insights and practical application. Others may seem uh, dry and tedious and tough and, and, uh, and, and maybe of little practical application. But um, the one thing that is interesting to me, at least, as just a student of some substantial years in the Scripture, is the more I've read, the more I've discovered behind every little detail is a hidden nugget. Some of these require a lot more scholarship and so forth than I've been able to apply to them, so that's, uh, uh, I'm, 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 uh, I'm sorry that wasn't more fruitful. But on the other hand, when you get things like uh, Zelophehad's daughters and such, it's fascinating to me that, if you, if, that the Lord will reward the diligent student. And if you take the trouble to dig behind this, I don't believe that there's anything in the Scripture that won't yield an insight, and specifically an insight in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, the seven feasts of Moses we'll talk more of. The, um, the uh, genealogies, which are tedious when you encounter them in your daily Bible reading. You sort of, like most of us, skim through that uh, hurriedly. 
uh, yet nevertheless, they're there uh, not by accident. They're there by design. The Lord has put them there, and behind them lie some insights. Uh, the Lord has gone through an incredible amount of detail to plan his redemption for you and I. We often think of what a miracle the creation is, whether you're looking through the heavens in a telescope or whether you're looking through the biology with a microscope at either end of our spectrum. We're constantly awed by the planning and the intricacy of design in the creation. But the creation pales into insignificance compared to his redemption. His design and intention and concern for your redemption mind vastly exceeds the creation itself, both by the amount of scripture that's devoted to both subjects and also by the price it cost him. Our redemption cost him far more than the creation itself. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we praise you for who you are. And Father, we're awed as we get glimpses of the preparation that you have made on our behalf, the extremes to which you have gone that we might live, the extent to which you have gone to demonstrate to us and others in ages yet to come your infinite love towards us in Christ Jesus. Father, we would ask you to increase in our hearts a hunger for your word, minister to us this week by your Holy Spirit, that we might grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and draw us more closely into your word and into those insights and responses that you would have of us, that we might be more pleasing in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This concludes tape number eight in the numbers study given by Chuck Messler. The study will conclude on tape number nine.